You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David S. Goyer is a screenwriter and film director and comic book writer. His work includes Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Unborn, Blade and Blade Two, and the screenplay for The Puppet Masters. Michael Cassett is a television producer, screenwriter, and author. His work includes The Twilight Zone in Erie, Indiana. His novels include Missing Man, Red Moon, and Tango Midnight. Together, their new novel is Heaven's Shadow. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. You're most welcome. Yes, thank you, Rick. You know, um, this is such a, a wonderfully classic science fiction novel that does what we really want science fiction novels to do. It addresses the big themes. It externalizes our inner fears. And I'm wondering how you guys came together to write this novel. Um, this is uh, David speaking right now. Uh, it, it, it happened in a, a very circuitous fashion. Um, Years ago, I I had uh, a notion uh, for a film, and um, I was interested in doing a, a kind of hard science fiction film, uh, and something said in the near future that was as as grounded, as rooted in reality and the current sort of plans for the space program as possible. And uh, while I'm an enormous fan of science fiction. Um, I, I, I knew that for the amount of, of detail and research that I was hoping for, um, that I would uh, I, I was looking for someone else to partner up with, and I, I had known Michael for quite a few years, and I knew that he was much more uh, in had a much more in depth grasp of of NASA and the space program and sort of what was on the drawing books than I did. So I proposed that the two of us collaborate together on a film treatment. And um, then what happened is the Writers Guild strike happened, and uh, we were precluded from at least taking out that that treatment, which we were going to attempt to sell. Uh, and Michael said, "Why don't we turn it into a book proposal?" Yeah, David and I had probably met. God, it goes back at least the mid-90s, through Michael Engelberg on The Puppet Masters. Michael was the producer of that and had stayed in touch over the years. In fact, I, I kept noticing that every time I I ran across a project that David was involved with, I, I usually had some weird connection to it, like he was rewriting someone who had been a buddy of mine in college or somebody I'd worked with on something else. Um, but, yes, when the, the strike hit, we had this cool idea and never being too far from thinking about Arthur C. Clarke and, uh, in this case, Kubrick as well. We thought, well, they developed 2001 simultaneously as a novel and a movie. Why don't we? So that was how it uh, turned into uh, Heaven Shadow, the book. You know, um, one of the things I think that is really effective about this book is that when we read it, we really feel like it takes place exactly in the present. It's so grounded and, uh, you know, knotted up in the, in the real world. Well, uh, again, um, for me at least, I like a lot of my science fiction. Um, I, I prefer to have have uh, science fiction that is is often as grounded as possible, where you take essentially what is our world and then inject one bizarre or otherworldly concept into it. Um, 
I tend to think that it's more relatable, you know. And and while I, Michael and I both are enormous science fiction fans, I know that sometimes uh, it, it can be marginalized by the larger reading population. So we were hoping, um, perhaps taking a page from someone like Michael Crichton, to um, uh, you know attract a broad audience and in a, in a stealthy way um, get them to read a science fiction novel without them fully realizing they were reading a science fiction novel. <laughs> well, and this is Michael. I mean, my my approach, I, I, even uh, David's is exactly mine. Is we're Wellsians, H.G. Wells. Uh, his dictum was change one thing. Right. Uh, and, and given that this was not about some technology changing the way we live, which would require us to project it and look 50 years or 100 years in the future or 500 years in the future on Earth, it was about something coming into our world. It, yes, the idea was to set it as close to the present as possible. Um, and, and hopefully, therefore, to make it as relatable to uh, a large audience as possible. And, and there is, is that consideration as well. If you look at... Uh, Neil Stevenson's brilliant new novel, Anathem. I mean, he, he in essence addresses it. It's set on a, a, another world in a you know God knows what time or future or whatever. And and he addresses the two audiences at the beginning. He put a note on on the book saying, if you're a science fiction fan and you like playing the, the world building game, uh, skip these three pages of uh, of detailed notes and exposition. I'm I'm giving the unfamiliar reader <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to get you right into it. So, I, I mean, if if Neil Stevenson, who has a pretty vast reading audience, has to do that, uh, I think uh, other SF writers should be aware. Although, again, without giving too much away, as we've ultimately uh, are, you know, doing a projected trilogy, we're actually writing the second book right now. Um, having said that, uh, you know, we've, after the change one thing dictum, uh, by the time this trilogy closes, we, we, we will have written ourselves into a corner and may be forced to to write about a world that exists 50 or 100 years from now as well. So so think of Heaven's Shadow as your, your gateway uh, drug. It's a, so. it is a, it's a very effective gateway drug. I can hardly wait for the second chapter here, or second part. Now, one of the things I think uh, you do really well is, you know, the, the setup is great because this begins with a near-Earth object. I recently spoke with, I spoke with Timothy Ferris back when he wrote his book about the backyard astronomers. And my uh, wife, my wife worked for Orion Telescopes for many years, so I'm really familiar with that. So, talk a little bit of, just about the setup of you know how how we get how things begin. Well, it, it 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 our book at least initially starts. It it's it's a it's a it's a time worn conceit within science fiction. The kind of Big dumb object, uh, almost <laughs> subgenre. I, I guess perhaps starting with Rendezvous with Rama, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where where some large object, you know, uh, enters our solar system, and and may or may not turn out to be something, you know, under extraterrestrial control or of extraterrestrial, uh, uh, um, you know, origins, and. Um, I always thought that that was, you know, an, an interesting starting point. It, it also, to a certain extent, without giving too much away, is a, is a story about first contact. Uh, that having been said, I, I personally feel that a lot of first contact stories tend to fall into usually one of two categories. The first category is an alien invasion story, like Independence Day or, you know, 
footfall or, you know, what have you. Uh, and uh, the other category tends to be, you know, uh, Earth. The people of Earth are given a test, and if they can pass it, they get to join the Cosmic Club. That would be 2001, uh, maybe Contact, other things like that. Uh, and what we were trying to come up with was um, uh, perhaps another reason, another variation on the theme for why um, alien entities might want to contact us. You know, one of the things that drives this book and makes it so enjoyable is uh, are the characters and the way you've created astronauts as characters. So I'd like each of you to talk about what you brought to the astronauts as characters. David, one of the things I, I noticed about, you know, your all your movies, the stuff you've worked on, has been very much grounded in reality, and I really like that. And, and Michael, I think you bring a lot of this kind of NASA stuff into there, especially things like NASA rules and, and the idea of being scope-locked. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, in the same way that a lot of uh, more more successful television writers have their own obsessions, you know, which can be, say, cop shows and, and doctor shows. My, my obsession has always been the world of NASA and astronauts, space exploration, and, and the realities of it. What is it like to, to, to enter that world? What is it like to, you know, try to survive in it? And during my, uh, this hobby research, I guess, I've, I've wound up meeting Certainly most of the surviving uh, uh, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo astronauts gotten to know them, wrote books with two of them. So I, I have a pretty good idea of that world. And also into the shuttle era, I know, know people who have flown in the space station, flown on the uh, shuttle many times. I know Russian cosmonauts. So it's just <clears throat> I think I have a, a fairly nuanced um, idea of what those folks are like, uh, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what uh, – and, and how they would react to situations, what the pressures of the job are, and pressures on their on their life, and uh, that I think is reflected in uh, in those characters. And that's that's one of the and one of the many reasons why I asked Michael if he would work on this project with me, is he had this sort of wealth of inf- personal information and anecdotes uh, about all of these people. And as we go through the writing process, sometimes we'll go off on these tangents, and Michael will relate, you know, one little story or nugget or another, and I'll say, oh, we definitely have to put that in. One of the things that's interesting to me uh, as a, a sort of bystander, because Michael's a lot more integrated into this world than I am, are, are you know, we we as, as civilians, uh, and I say that with, you know, air quotes, tend to think of NASA as this sort of, I don't know, we, we sometimes conflate it with DARPA or whatnot, think of it as this, you know, perhaps amazing organization, but it's, of course, filled with all this, uh, and we say this as fans, but, you know, infighting and, and politics and and you know, screw-ups and all sorts of things, and those are the things that make for an interesting sort of, you know, reading tapestry. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a moment in um, sort of a plot point in the book that hinges on... Um, the the Russian suits sort of there being a design malfunction in them that's I guess within that community well known but of course I didn't know that before we started writing it and Michael was talking about it and we realized that it provided us you know with a, a an interesting plot twist uh, as the story was going and it's that kind of verisimilitude I think that perhaps makes it more hopefully relatable to a larger audience yeah I think we, you have to start with a, a firm foundation, something that, that feels real, and it, 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 as I said earlier, it's a, it's a better gateway into the wilder, 
more SF-like uh, speculations. So uh, hopefully that worked. Well, it's it's certainly a perfect perfect gateway. Now, one of the things I, you know, when I was reading this book, I'd read the book and then I'd look at the cover, read the book and look at the cover, and I never ever once thought that two guys were writing this book. It always felt like one guy. So talk about creating such a really unified prose voice. It's very strong, and I think it's totally successful. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that the um, hopefully that's the you know hall- hallmark of a good collaboration. I mean, it's I think the voice that came out of it is definitely a, sens- a, a synthesis of our of you know our respective skill sets. I mean, I you know tend to probably come up with the you know the wild and crazy ideas. Uh, often they're too wild and too crazy, and we have to scale back. And I'm you know. Sometimes I think of it as Michael's the one that will say, you know, how about if we build the apple cart this way, and then I'll kick it over and say, well, what if we do it that way? Does it have to be an apple cart? Yeah, does it have to be an apple cart? And you know, <laughs> at least half the time, yes, it does have to be an apple cart. But uh, but that's my 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 nature is to sort of you know, tinker around and say, well, what if we did kill that person, you know, on page twenty instead of seventy, or what if that person came back to life, or all sorts of crazy things like that. Um, I, you know, I think that hopefully it has a unified voice because we pass the baton uh, uh, back and forth, you know, between each other. Um, yeah, there. I mean, there are there are various ways people collaborate, in, including you know the classic SF collaborations, Fred Pohl and C.M. Cornbluth, where what they did what was called a hot typewriter. Cornbluth would start writing and he would write four or five pages and then say, your turn, and uh, go away, and then Fred Pohl would sit down and uh, do the next four or five pages, and that was how things like The Space Merchants got written. We were a little more integrated in that. We spent a tremendous amount of time on the story together and literally passed it, just passed it back and forth, and, you know, he would be rewriting me, I'd be rewriting him, and what you see in the book is the result of uh, just multiple passes, multiple multiple reads, multiple tweaks, multiple uh, revisions, so... uh, if it, it came across as seamless, it's just uh, uh, a result of a lot of hard work, and I think sort of a you know, shared sensibility and shared uh, 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 eye and ear. Um, I've collaborated with a lot of people, you know, having uh, ranging from Mercury astronauts to uh, various TV writers, and uh, even a few people in the prose world. And I, I find David's uh, story sense to be something, and, and work ethic to be something I'm very, very compatible and happy with. I will say, having predominantly worked in film only recently have I you know more recently have I branched out into television I had a show called Flash Forward on you know about a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and that experience television tends to be a much more collaborative medium where you will have multiple writers sometimes working on the same episode you know different people taking different scenes or breaking stories together and I, I will say that, that experience uh perhaps has allowed me to become a better collaborator. We're, we were plotting the books. We're sort of in the, the thorny thicket of the you know, kind of third act of the second novel right now with, um, with cards, you know, index cards, which really? is, sort of, yeah. That's, that's pretty retro. I was expecting an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> no, I, it's, it's, there's something to be said for actually, it's funny. I mean, that tends often to be how people plot out, uh, you know, television episodes. And it, certainly that 
that's how Chris Nolan and I have always worked on the Batman and now you know Superman. But they, there's something to be said for actually sitting down and hand writing out um, you know scenes or or moments and sticking them up on a board and I don't know. Yes, it, it is. It is very sort of antiquated, I suppose. It's the tactile uh, edition. Oh, yeah. I think that it, it it just sort of helps. It helps you remember. It helps you uh, uh, get a sense of accomplishment. I think. You know, when I read books for interviews, I always use yellow stickies and put them on the pages and write in an almost indecipherable handwriting. It's just terrible. And then I, in the process of typing those up, it, you like you're right. There's just something about the tactile world that makes things more satisfying and better. I found it. I found it with notes of my own. Is you know reading. It's like looking at a database and, and mm-hmm. knowing you've got a database. You can just go look something up. I, I find that I never remember things as well as in the days when I created my own database about mm. something. Sure. When, when if I actually have to write it, I mean, even if, even if I'm physically typing it, but if it's just if it goes through my eyes and out my fingers, I remember it far better than if it's just something I pick up. I'm 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 looking at my desk. This is here. Here's an, uh, not not exactly an Easter egg, but a with a card that says uh, "Pav." And Zhao see a cat's eye. That's for Heaven's War, the second novel. No one will know what that means. We may not know what it means. Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar. You know, one of the things you guys do in this book, in a, in, ta- in terms of time-honored traditions for science fiction novels, the chapter heading deals are right up there at the top. But you guys do something different. You actually tell a story in your chapter headings, and I thought that was really rockin' fun. That was uh, that was just one of those things. I'm not saying the other books will have those because they may not lend themselves to that, but it, it seemed that it was a, a great way to do a little, I guess, you know, uh, what is it, the metafiction or hyperlinked text as well. Mm-hmm. You're, you're telling something else. It's, it's, it's one of the things, even just as an ambition as a writer, goes back to people like Henry Kuttner, who were masters of the, the form, or highfalutin, or highfalutin Nabokov, telling a story in footnotes. Right. There's a mm-hmm. novel. <laughs> but there's also another story going on. It, it, it's also a way, I mean, I, and that, that sort of evolved kind of late in the game. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we certainly had a draft or two of the novel before we decided to do that. But it's another way to sort of, I, I don't know, sprinkle in, you know, as opposed to just devoting whole chapters to perhaps some of these people that are posting or these snippets of things, reactions from around the world. It's, it's another way to to uh, you know, let you know that this is uh, happening all over the world. Yeah, that, that was. It was just sometimes it was just a, a, I guess, a plotting response or a mechanical response to the the need to, the, the conflicting need to keep the story focused on what was going on, on the neo, while at the same time giving the reader a sense of what might be going on back on Earth or in in the rest of the universe. You know. Um, for for all the as as fun as this book is to read, there's there's actually a lot of really um, you know really well thought out thought provoking stuff in there, and, and you you talk about uh, the dangers of being an astronaut, and it's something that doesn't we we don't often think of, or I haven't often think of, but you know the the chances aren't good, and there's a particular kind of grief and loss that goes with uh, being in the space program, isn't there? I think that there's, and Michael would be able to speak to this, you know. Even and, and he will in a moment, even more sort of poetically than myself. But I, I think that there's a there's a sense of camaraderie, obviously also 
you know, competition between these people that, that, that bonds them together, bonds them together, you know, probably even more so than policemen or firemen. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, but I, the mortality rate uh, and, and the loneliness, you know, if you think about, you know, these people are getting flung up into space, they're fl- either flying to the moon or, you know, maybe, you know, flying to a Neo. I mean, it's, it takes an incredibly unique group of people that have to go through this. And if you talk about even, even you know, people coming home from the war from Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, you know, often they talk about how they can only relate to one another. You know, how do they communicate what they experience to civilians? Well, you've got this incredibly small group of, you know, how many people alive right now have actually been off our planet? Mm. Um over 400, you know, it's on that scale. I okay, mean, but, but yeah. 400 compared to, you know, how many millions of people have been in the military or that's how many millions it. of people have been cops, you know, it's a very small group. Yeah, that's just it. it, it it's a small group, and uh, you're correct. It's, it's bonding in a way that only the most intense sort of combat experiences are, and, and it goes on sort of longer. I mean, it's uh, the training for space flights. I mean, you, people who become astronauts and cosmonauts in many cases have wanted to do it since they were kids. So you have you know, 20, 25, 30 years of ambition and aiming your life towards something and then finding yourself in that world where you're, it's still competitive, it's still challenging, you're, you're bonding with certain people, you're debonding with other people, and then just the, the flights themselves. I mean, the, 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 the danger factor is actually quite high. I mean, the, the shuttle had, I don't know what the final calculation is, but it was one... As, as the program ends, it's like one in 70 of those missions could have ended in a just utter catastrophe. I don't, I don't like those odds. I, 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 I Nobody does. I, I wouldn't be you know, marching out there happily to, uh, to the space shuttle uh, with, with those odds. I mean, I, you know, you go with eyes wide open. Um, you would go interplanetary missions beyond Earth orbit, as they say, are even more dangerous. And there are people who will do it, and, and God bless them. Um, we should uh, be aware of of the risks they're taking and embracing, and uh, and admire them for you know for going into it. But don't forget about it, and and don't be surprised if something goes wrong, because chances are something will. And there's also the prospect that we bring up, you know, relatively early on in this novel doesn't give too much away that it's possible that that these people undertaking this mission it may be a one-way mission. Mm. Um, and and that's. You know, potentially, you know, at least at least with one of our lead characters, he's got a teenage daughter uh, who, you know, he has a lot of misgivings about potentially, you know, orphaning her. Uh, but, you know, ultimately she's the one that says, I think you should go. Well, and that's something that comes from just the, the real world of being an astronaut or cosmonaut. You know, people say, well, why do astronauts turn down flight assignments as they have or turn down... Uh, or, or leave the space program, and largely it's it's for family reasons. I mean, yes, there's a certain case of well, I I, I fulfilled a goal, I I got to fly once, twice, three times, but a lot of it is just uh, I can't put my family through this anymore. You know, um, as a science fiction novel, this has a lot of really interesting uh, science fictional ideas, and you you tackle them well and, and reveal them well. And I think that's one of the things that science fiction does. And you talk about this; you actually address it directly in the book. Science fiction has a lot in common, I think, with mystery, the mystery genre, in terms of when you get out to to some science fiction situation. It's just a matter of trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And at one point. Uh, 
uh, somebody's talking to Zach and says, Zach, you always, uh, who's the, the lead character here, and he's, they're saying, he always really enjoyed mystery. So I'd like you to talk about pacing this as a science fiction novel in terms of, okay, here we're going to tell them this, here we're going to tell them this. You don't have to tell us what you're telling us, but just how you guys got together and set up the pace of the science fictional revelations within the structure of the novel. Wow, that's a uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Well, David, what you can say is that we're we're such cunning geniuses that we had it all planned out in advance, and and uh, we don't want to share our our double secret techniques. Uh, but I think it's really just a case of this: is we're both very, I think. Uh, sophisticated and experienced science fiction readers and fans. I mean, mm. we've been, we know most of, if not all, the, the major and many of the minor authors in the genre and read and like this stuff. Uh, so our approach was, we've got these ideas we want to explore. Let's do them in, in the way that satisfies us as, as readers. Put ourselves in the, the role of the characters, which I think is what you want to do as a writer anyway. And, okay, what do we find out and how? And just follow that through. And 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 I, I can say again, I, you know, as a science fiction reader, I don't like when authors cheat. Mm. I don't like when I feel as if they're not playing, you know, fair with us. I don't like when authors anthropomorphize aliens, you know, very much. I think that the, if we ever encounter intelligent life, I, I think that, you know, somebody said, you know. The universe is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. It might have been J.S. Haldane or someone like that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, one of the things that we tried to do from our perspective was, was um, to the extent that the alien presence does start to communicate with the humans, it's, it's really difficult for them to communicate what's going on because they're just so wildly different from us that, that you know, it's a huge... That in and of itself is a kind of huge triumph that they can only, you know, even if they're able to communicate only a few things. Because I think that that is probably, you know, I would imagine more what it would really be like if it ever happens. Uh, There's a a, a well-known, not only science fiction writer, but scientist, Gregory Benford, who uh, uh, talks about, it, it has kind of critiqued certain kinds of science fiction as being tennis with the net down. And uh, what we wanted it to be was tennis with the net up. I think you and, did a great job at that, not anthropomorphizing the, the aliens. I thought, <clears throat> and I agree with you. That's all too often the case. They're just kind of, you know, uh, like the uh, Star Trek characters and not like seeing enemies. Well, they're, they're Star Trek characters or they're taking nothing away from Star Trek, which, mm-hmm. you know, we're both fans of. But Or, or they're, they're like, you know, E.T. or Close Encounters, which are wonderful movies, but I, I doubt they would be like that, mm. you know? Um, I, I think that the they'd be something really different. And, you know, one of the things that we're also both interested in is, is um, which we start to get into more in the, you know, second and third books is, is time scale. That, that you know, um, uh, you know, alien cultures may have a completely different concept of time. Uh, it may experience time in different ways than us, and that may have implications for how they communicate with us or why they're communicating. And I and I know I'm being vague because I'm trying not to give away uh, where we're going. But but you know we tried very hard to really think about some of these things, and 
you know, we also try to do what I think all the best science fiction does well, which is 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 broach subjects from a, a kind of skewed direction. So we, we we talk about things like immortality and the soul and potentially life after death. Um, and and we use science fiction as an allegory. I think you do that really well. That's one of the things that I thought what was really uh, fascinating about this book was the way you used uh, science fiction and science and scientific thought to to approach subjects that are traditionally seen as the uh, uh, as religious. Well, I, I I mean that's not you know I think that the uh, I'd like to I'm not particularly religious myself, but I'd like to think of myself as spiritual. And I, I, and I know there are a great many scientists who are also religious. And, and so I, there's no reason why you can't attempt to bridge the gap between science and, you know, more theosophical questions, you know, uh, which to a certain extent we attempted to broach. I, I mean, I think sometimes the, the two can potentially overlap. Well, and I would go so far as to say that much of, if not most of the best science fiction is inherently religious anyway. I mean, just look at the titles of things that won the Hugo Award. It's Lord of Light. It's Stranger in a Strange Land. They're all Dune. I mean, they, they sort of have godlike figures or explorations of uh, Messiah-like uh, beings at, at their heart. And uh, a lot of uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke's work, Childhood's End, you're, you're, you're confronting, uh, in his case, literally a, a creature that looks like the devil. Um, so you're using religious mythology to uh, explore certain kinds of religious concepts anyway. So that, I think that has always been an inherent part and central part of science fiction to begin with. You know, uh, I, I love here, too, the, the device that we've, we saw this in foot, football, which you mentioned before, the home team. This is a lot of fun. You have a lot of fun with the home team, don't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, for a variety of reasons. And there, there are interesting links between that home team and our home team. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the home team is the the you know they they bring in a group of uh, NASA brings in a group of advisors to sort of uh, from you know various fields, including some some are science fiction writers uh, to to try to help interpret the data that's spilling in from what this team is encountering on the on the Neo on the near Earth object and yeah. and. Um, as probably would be the case, there's a, there's a, a lot of um, you know kind of jostling personalities, big personalities, and you know varying degrees of opinions as to what should and shouldn't be done. And as uh, someone it, 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 talk about science fiction being predictive, is long after this book was done, I wound up on a uh, National Academy of Sciences panel dealing with a NASA issue, in essence a home team, and of course yes they had the requisite astronauts, engineers. Uh, aerodynamicist, and a science fiction writer. <laughs> well, that's so interesting. Now, uh, and I have to say that I agree with you that <clears throat> this book reminded me a, a lot of 2001 in terms of how it felt um, to, to read. And you talked about developing the book and the movie at the same time. So uh, I talk about how that uh, felt for you because at one point in here, one of the characters – uh, talks about it. Uh, I think the science fiction writer's movie is is mentioned. And uh, if I read the book right, we're, we will expect to see the movie at about the time the book takes place. 
Well, uh, you know, of course, you never know in Hollywood, but uh, this David speaking, uh, uh, yeah, I'm now in the bizarre um, circumstance of uh, I'm actually just about next week to start the screenplay adaptation of Heaven's Shadow, even as we are writing the, you know, the novel sequel, Heaven's War. Um, and so it's going to be an, an interesting experience. I've adapted a lot of things before as a screenwriter, but I've never adapted myself. Oh, really? Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and it's, and I know some authors have done that successfully and, and, and some haven't. Uh, that I, I think, you know, one of the biggest tricks is going to be that there are a lot of things that you can do in a novel that, um, you know, sort of convey someone's internal state of mind, um, you know, uh, that you, that you can't necessarily do, uh, in a film. So it, it'll be, you know, I really won't know specifically until I get a bit further into the weeds, you know, um, how much I'm cursing myself, but or cursing ourselves, but you can, yeah, you'll be cursing me as well. Yeah, the other thing is, I'll be cursing back. Yeah, uh, is how the hell do we convey this visually? <laughs> I say you're the screenwriter; you figure it out. Exactly. Well, how much since you guys knew you were writing this for a movie, and it started out as a screenplay treatment? How much? I'd like you just to just talk about the interplay between the two forms because, as uh, David said, there are things you can do in a book that are very simple and natural that you can't even begin to think about doing in a movie. Well, once we decided to do a novel uh, in that form, then we we decided that there, there sort of had to be a church-state separation, and, and we just said, screw it, we're writing a novel and and who cares about the movie? Which I think is a healthier way to approach it. Mm, mm. It's just just do what's best for the novel. Worry about the movie later. Um, so, you know, in that regard, I've got two different caps on, and uh, you know, I'll put on my screenwriting cap in a couple of weeks, and 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 then we'll deal with the adaptation. So we we truly didn't sit there and say, well, now we have to ultimately think about you know a screenplay adaptation or a film. So maybe we shouldn't do that. I mean, we. We once we decided we were going to do a novel, we just embraced the novel and, and just said we, we're just going to try to write the best possible novel we can. You know, there's actually a moment in here in this book, and I've never really experienced this before, and I thought it was just so fun, much fun, where things are going not so well, and the reader and the and the chapter header and the characters are all saying the exact same thing at the exact same time. It's a word I can't use on the radio, unfortunately. <laughs> you guys I think, have... the, I think I know the word you're talking about. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I hopefully, you know, again, this doesn't, doesn't give away too much, but I would say there's a certain point in the book where things go spectacularly wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, but, but hopefully that makes for a good read. Well, and that's probably us responding to or building on or evolving from. Uh, we're huge Arthur C. Clarke fans, um, but Clarke's, a lot of Clarke's work, um, especially in, the, say, the latter part of his career, tended to, to lack a little drama. I mean, he was much more interested, God bless him, in the exploration and uh, presentation of wonders and, and, and things like that. Um, mm. But sometimes... Uh, sort of lacked a little bit of uh, drama and a sense of, well, w- you, we think you really learn when things go wrong. And mm-hmm. so, yes, we things do go wrong, as I think they often do in uh, 
real life and in better stories. Well, this is a, a wonderful ripping yarn. But, you know, one of the things you do well that I think is that Clark does well, and that is a real hallmark of, of great science fiction, and this is using a simile and metaphor. And there's a, one great point where somebody says, that, that's like trying to explain the Internet to Ben Franklin. Right. <laughs> And I think that's a a really important tool in the science fiction uh, toolkit. Well, yeah, because again, I think that you, if you think about, if we're, if we're dealing with aliens, um, you know, just by virtue of the fact that they would be able to reach us mm. means they're probably so much more farther advanced than we are. That that uh, you know. It, it, in truth, you know, as a simile, it would probably be, you know, much. It would be more like trying to explain the internet to, you know, I don't know, a baboon. Yeah, yeah, exactly, a Cro-Magnon <laughs> man or something yeah. like that. It's, it's, it's. How can you? Which is, you know, one of the things we we really try to wrestle with, you know, in the book is is, you know, for these aliens to reach us, it means that they have have to have had, you know, mastered interstellar travel, um, and and that is a level of technology hundreds, you know, or thousands or thousands of years beyond where we are right now. If you just think about how many changes have occurred, you know, in our civilization over the course of the last hundred years, now, you know, expand that times 10. You know, also, too, as uh, as writers, here you are, you've got this ripping yarn going. It's one book, though. You have three you must be chomping at the bit and architecting this stuff out into the future. I'd like you to just talk about how much you've thought through the, you're obviously partway through the second, how far are you into the third in terms conceptually, or do you just have a title? And if so, what is that title? Uh, the title, uh, well, the title of the second book is Heaven's War. The The title of the third is Heaven's Fall. Mm-hmm. Um, it does involve some much more classically science fictional uh speculations or if this goes on take take what happens in in heaven's shadow uh heaven's war expands upon that what would be the aftermath of what's happened there um heaven's fall will be a slightly more distant uh evolution um i don't want to get into any details but we we have given it a lot of thought mm. we're we're setting the stage planting the seeds doing all the uh the there, yeah there, there are definitely a lot of um um things that we planted in the in the first book that will sort of come to fruition i mean the, the second book is 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 sort of midway through being written right now we i would say it's well, it's pretty much all the way plotted out. We just have we've got a couple of kinks to work out in the end, and we have a broad stroke uh, idea of what's going on in the third book. One of the things, though, that was kind of fun for us was this: there's so much lead time, or at least there was with the first book, from the time we finished the the uh, you know the first manuscript to the time we actually had to go to print. Uh, we were going through various, um, you know, versions. Uh, it was being copy edited, copy edited, and whatnot. And by that point, we were, you know, well along the way into plotting and writing the second book. So it allowed us to go back in the eleventh hour and insert a couple of things that we, you know, that we realized we needed. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. Very so, nice. 
Well, and that's that. Yeah, that's we weren't uh, using flashcards and uh, or index cards and pushpins, and that was high tech. Uh, the, the 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 bonus of high tech publishing, we're still able to do a few things. It wasn't wasn't huge, and it wouldn't have, would not have made a lot of difference. The the best thing I can say about uh, um, book three, without giving away much, is that if you look at the central ideas that that come to fore in book one, um, you'll discover what they mean to human beings. Uh, as a larger group in book three. Well, that looks great. Sounds great. And I look forward to it. And I'm sure my readers do too. I've been speaking with David Goyer and Michael Cassett. Their new novel is Heaven's Shadow. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. You're very welcome. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.